First John chapter three. We're going to look at verses four through ten this morning, but I will begin reading at chapter two, verse twenty-eight, to set the context. Children who practice righteousness. So begin reading at verse twenty-eight. And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is." And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Amen. Well, let us pray. Lord, our God, thank you for the truth concerning your love for your people. Thank you that we can say with John what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Thank you that it's by your mighty work by the Spirit to make us born again. Thank you that you're the one who gives the gifts of faith and repentance by the Spirit because of Christ and his finished work. And we know that when we were born into this world, we were born in sin. We had the guilt of sin upon us, and we still dealt, and we dealt with the corruption of sin. And yet we are thankful for Christ our Lord who died to take away our sins, who died to conquer the enemy. And we're thankful that when we believed in our lives that you gave us the gift of justification, that righteousness uh, that is imputed to us by Christ, wherein we are declared not guilty. And thank you that you are sanctifying us by your spirit. And so we ask and pray as your children, as those who have been redeemed, as those who've been regenerated, as those who have been born again, We ask and pray that we would shun sin, that we would shun evil, and that we would pursue righteousness. Help us to remember that we do not pursue righteousness because of anything good within us, but because of what you have done and because of our status before you, that we are the children of God, that we have our great Christ who knew no sin, who became sin and died on that cross for wretches like us. Thank you that we are the children of God and it is manifested. We are the children of God by what we do. And thank you that this is uh, an assurance. This is a comfort. Thank you that works are an evidence of one's salvation and not a means for one's salvation. And thank you that your word helps us understand these things. So we ask and pray that your people, your children would be encouraged and strengthened and uplifted today. We ask and pray uh, for those who do not know you. We pray that you would save their souls, that it would one day be manifest that they are children of God. But we know if they die in their trespasses and sins, it will be manifest that they are the children of the devil. And so thank you that you give us aid from on high by your spirit to understand these difficult things. And so we ask and pray you would send forth your spirit. Give us illumination. Give us understanding. Help us to understand your word with clarity this morning, especially as we deal with difficult topics and subjects. But thank you that this is your word and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, and that your word of uh, your word does go forth and is glorified. We ask and pray that it would be glorified today. Help and strengthen us from on high. Be pleased to strengthen your saints. Be pleased to save sinners. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, last week, as we addressed the idea of children of God, I mentioned that when children are born, they sometimes in many ways resemble their parents with what they look like and how they act. And that is true of spiritual children as well. Whether one is a child of God or whether one is a child of the devil, that will be made manifest. But one thing that was more implied last week, and I'd like to make more explicit today, is the idea of growth for children. How do children grow up? How do children mature? And when is it that God's people, when is it that the children of God are actually fully mature? The reality is that we are not going to be fully mature until Christ comes back. We're not going to be fully mature until we pass. That is, in this present world, as we are making our way to that celestial city, we are still growing. There is still much we need to grow in. So how is it and what should a child of God do as we make our way to that growth, as we make our way to that maturity, as we grow unto that fullness? Well, this seems to be what John's emphasis is in verses 4 through 10 in contrast with the false teachers. Those who are children of God will shun sin and pursue righteousness. We're not looking for perfection, but one way to know, one way to have assurance that we are the children of God is with respect to sin and with respect to our Christian life, with respect to holy living. What one thinks of sin and what one thinks of holy living can be a test of assurance or it can be a challenge, a challenge for the false teachers, but an assurance for the children of God. Now, remember, his main purpose is to assure his main purpose is to encourage the children of God. I write to you, little children, that you might know that you have eternal life. But as he does so, there is some challenge involved here to those who are not children of God. God. And so as uh, it's structured like a sermon, we've come to the second point of the sermon of first John, which focuses on as living as the children of God, which is shun sin and pursue righteousness. Now, the problem is very clear in these verses. It is the problem of sin. Sin is that universal problem. Adam violated God's law and brought sin and misery into this world. And because of that, mankind loves sin. Because of that, mankind is under the dominion of sin when man is born into this world. And even after God's people are redeemed in this present world, we still have not made our way to heaven just yet. God's people still struggle with remaining corruption. God's people still struggle with much sin. There can be no sinless perfection on this side of heaven. We are perfect in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are seen as perfect in the Lord Jesus Christ even now, but as we walk and make our way, as we live our actual lives, as we do various acts, we still sin in this present world in which we live. But the assurance is sin is no longer that life principle that drives us. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have been born again. We are in that state of grace as the children of God. And so in the present age, we are able to sin and able not to sin. We long for the time where we will not be able to sin. And if you're not in Christ, you, you are only able to sin. You are not, um, uh, that is all that you can do. You are not, um, I'm going to get the words mixed up, but you get what I'm saying. You can only sin as you are born in sin. And so uh, in 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10, John reminds his hearers that if they are the children of God in Christ, they should follow after righteousness. They've been redeemed. They've been changed. A child of God should want to do the things that his father loves. A child of God should want to shun sin and pursue righteousness. And he's building off what he said in verse 28 of chapter 2. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 is more of an interjection. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. And he comes again to discuss what children should look like. And so we'll look at this pursuit of righteousness under two headings this morning. I've already said them. The children of God shun sin, verses 4 through 6, and the children of God pursue righteousness, verses 7 through 10. So shun sin, 
pursue righteousness. Those are the two points. Children of God shun sin and children of God pursue righteousness. So let's first look at how the children of God shun sin in verses four through six. Now, again, remember the context. There are these false teachers. There are heretics. There are men who claim to know God, but they not deny things concerning our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They deny things concerning matter, deny things concerning sin. They claim to know God, but they want to know God on their own terms rather than know God by the way, uh, by God's terms, namely in and through the word of life who has been manifest. So the children of God abide in God. They abide in Christ. The children of God are loved by God and the children of God hope in God. When shall we see him? How shall we see him? It is in and through Christ alone. So what you say about Christ is vital. What you say about the word of life has everlasting ramifications. And these false teachers were denying Christ. They denied that he came in the flesh. They denied the father and the son. They denied the reality of sin, which we'll talk about a little bit more. So then John turns to discuss the reality of sin and what that means for the children of God uh, in verses four through 10. And notice we get a wonderful definition. We get the essence of sin in verse four. We see what sin is. And notice again, he he, notice he gives a general reference to draw us in to think about these things. He says, whoever, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. We've already seen an assessment of the reality of sin in chapter one. If one denies sin, they are a liar. If one denies the actual sinful nature and the acts that flow out of that nature, they make God out to be a liar. We need to know our sin. We need to know how we violated uh, uh, God's law, how we've transgressed to be able to know our need for a savior. Sin must be bitter. Sin must be a vile in order to see the sweetness of the savior. If someone has no need for a uh, doesn't see their sin, they're going to have no need for a savior. That's why it's so hard to evangelize to people who think they're good, to people who think they have some standing before God, to people of other religions who say that all roads lead to the same place. It is hard to evangelize to them for this very reason, because they think they're good. And that's why we preach the law. That's why we proclaim the Ten Commandments, so that the Ten Commandments might weigh people down, that it, they might, uh, that it might show that they are vile and awful, and that they cannot stand before God Most High, that we can then point people to our Savior. But notice, he says very clearly, sin is lawlessness. This is the essence of sin. It's one of the clearest ways for us to understand what it is. It is a defect that deviates from the divine standard. God made man in his image. God wrote the law of God upon man's heart, what we call natural law. And God then revealed it at Sinai for Israel. That's why some people have some semblance of justice because the law is written upon their heart. The image of God has not been lost after the fall. The image of God has been corrupted and been tainted after the fall, but it still remains. It gives man no excuse before God most high. And if you read your Bible, you probably notice that there's no explicit command to not murder before Sinai. How do we know that when Cain murders Abel, we know it's wrong? Because of the natural law written on the heart. And so all man is in sin when they violate the nat when they violate the natural law and violate the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments at Sinai, the revealed moral law, is what is written on the heart of mankind. But it is a defect. It is insanity. It is not the right thing. It is not the perfection. God made man in his image for what purpose? to glorify him. 
to honor him, to follow in his ways. And what does Adam do at the temptation of the devil? Well, the temptation of the devil tempted his wife and then his wife tempted him. He brings sin and misery into this world by violating the law of God. And he brings madness. He brings insanity, which we saw last week in Hosea. But Henry says sin is the destitution or privation of correspondence and agreement with divine law. That law, which is the transcript of the divine nature and purity, which contains his will for the government of the world, which is suitable to the rational nature and enacted for the good of the world, which shows man the way of felicity and peace and conducts him to the author of his nature and of the law. The law is good. The law is a good thing that God gave. The natural law is a reflection of the eternal standard of eternal law. Just like the moral law given at Sinai is a reflection of that eternal law. And so sin is defined as lawlessness. Sin is defined according to God's word, not according to what man thinks. Brethren, If you don't call a man who dresses like a woman a woman, that is not a sin, is it? The world will think that's a sin. The world will think that's taboo, but that is not sin. That man who's dressing as a woman is engaging in sin, is engaging in lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. I mean, is there a more clear passage that says in three words what sin actually is? It's a violation of of God's law. That's why the law is important. That's why we have to understand it. That's why we need to know its place uh, in this world and in Christian theology as well. And it is what God determines. And so as we see in verses four through six, he kind of outlines sin, the problem. He gives us the remedy in verse five. Then we see the consequence of what that means for those who are in that Christ. And so he tells us whoever commits sin uh, also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. But then we notice we see what the Savior does in relation to sin. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. We've seen this language of reveal the one who was actually there. The one who actually came in contrast with these false teachers, the false teachers just said it only appeared uh, that the son of God came. It only appeared. Jesus just looked like a man. He was just a phantasm. He was just a hologram of sorts. He he didn't actually come. But we needed a real savior, one who was really man. We need one who was man in body and soul with all the essential properties, body and soul and common infirmities. He goes through suffering. He goes through sorrow, yet he is without sin. And so when he comes the first time, we saw last time the the promise of his second coming, of his final return. And today we go back to his first coming. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. What's the implication? We were born in sin. We had violated God's law. We had rebelled against the Ten Commandments. And God, in his grace, by the work of the Spirit, showed us our wickedness and showed us our Savior and made us born again. Brethren, being born again precedes faith. Some people think you believe and then become born again. But if you read John 3, it's a passive. You are born again. And then you believe the whole the spirit works to give a new heart and the spirit works then and uh, 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 and gives the gift of faith as well. And we believe our own act, but it's but it is the work of the spirit. But we needed a savior. We needed this one to come. And this is why he came into the world to take away our sins to remove them, to to, to take away all the sins that his people have committed. And notice, and in him there is no sin. You see, man has violated, violated God's law with the first Adam did that very thing. And so we needed a perfect sacrifice. But there is only one who is perfect, and that is God, which makes the hypostatic union so important. 
It is a great mystery, but yet it sometimes makes sense in this way. Man sinned against God, but man is imperfect, yet we need one who is perfect to keep the law, namely the God-man. We needed the one who is God to take on human nature, to die for wretches like you and I, that we might have life with God, that we might dwell with him, that we might uh, come to him and uh, be with him uh, according to the end for which he created us, but comes in and through that last Adam. And so he came. He was manifest. We see a clear gospel presentation. We are sinful. We need a savior. He came to take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. It teaches us that Christ was and is impeccable. What that means is Christ could not sin. Not that he did not sin, although that's true, but Christ could not have sinned because of that hypostatic union. When we talk about him becoming sin, it's the transferring of our sin to him. The guilt of our sin upon him and the wrath of God poured out upon him that he might then transfer his righteousness to, you, to us. That's why imputation is important. That transferring. That, that bank account transfer. We were in the red. We were the ones who had a debt to be paid and that sin was transferred to him. He bore that upon himself and his righteousness is then transferred to us. See how important theology is, how important sin, uh, the doctrine of sin is, the doctrine of law, how it all comes together when it comes to what Christ did upon that cross. And so it's not just his dying on the cross that's important. It's the entire life that he lives, dear brethren. We just see like what, a three-year glimpse of it? He lived 33 years perfectly. He did not violate the law in one iota. He kept it in absolute perfection because you and I couldn't. The false teachers themselves here are claiming that they're not in sin. That's why we need to talk about sin and then see the beauties, uh, beauty and glory of our glorious Christ. Why did he come, dear brethren? Similar to what is said in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. How does he save sinners? He takes away our sins. He removes our sins. And why does he do that? Because he is that perfect sacrifice, that propitiation that we saw in chapter 2, verse 2, that sacrifice who turns away the wrath of God. So there's the problem of sin. There's the remedy in the Savior. What does that then mean for children of God? Verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Those in Christ don't sin. We're not calling for sinless perfection on this side of heaven. We certainly see that or that there's no sinless perfection because of what is said uh, in chapter one, verses five through chapter two, two. But the point is we are accepted and forgiven in Christ. We are seen in Christ and covered in Christ. It does not, but it does not excuse a life of lawlessness. And what he is saying here is, here's your status. Here is what you are in Christ Jesus. Thou do not sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. What he's saying here is if Christ died for our sin, if Christ is perfect, Live like the one you abide in. I think chapter 16 of the confession is helpful here. We struggle sometimes when it comes to the place of works. Our works, do they contribute to our standing before God? Are we in by faith and remain in by works? Uh, or is it just faith? Like, how does it all work? We are in by faith and remain in by faith, dear brethren. Works is an evidence of our salvation. I love what 16.2 says. What he is saying here and the emphasis of these verses is our life is no longer under dominion of sin. It's the same thing that is said in Romans 6. Not that we don't sin in our acts, 
but we're no longer under its dominion. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. He's saying the same thing here, or John's saying the same thing here. But what is said in 16.2? These good works are done in obedience to God's commandments, are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of adversaries, and glorify God whose workmanship they are created. Created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, which is eternal life. We are making our way to that eternal life. We are pressing on to that life that God has promised for us. What we are growing in, dear brethren, is what we already are in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we are growing in, dear brethren, is what we shall be uh, when Christ comes again. And later on in 16.6 of the confession, yet notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. We still have sin. We still have remaining corruption. But that he looking upon them in Christ is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere. Brother, remember I said we are able to sin and able not to sin in the state of grace. We can do that which is good, sometimes still tainted with sin, but we can do that which is good because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And those works then, not as a way of salvation, are nonetheless accepted in Christ because we are seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see where works go when it comes to our salvation. It is always in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. These uh, false teachers did not have that view or that understanding. You see the order. You see the flow. Christ, what Christ has done, what it then means for us who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. The writers go on to say in the confession, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. So we're not teaching sinless perfection on this side of heaven. John is not teaching that because of what we see in chapter one, but he is saying that if you're in Christ and abide in him, you are no longer characterized by sin. However, those who have not believed upon Christ, those whose life is characterized by sin has neither seen him nor known him. You see, dear brethren, believing upon Christ, the grace that we receive in Christ, from and in Christ, is not an excuse to engage in wickedness. It's not an excuse to engage in lawlessness. You see, again, we still have to put works in its place. There's always these swings, right? There's those who say grace. And then they see people living, you know, debauched life. They see people living in unholiness. And so they swing the other way and they say, no, your works do contribute to your salvation. I mean, they're always reacting to one another, right? You know, there's on each side. And then some people emphasize, here's the works that you have to do to contribute to uh, your salvation. And the antinomians go, no, that's not right. It's all over. Let's have a middle ground. Okay. Justification precedes sanctification. Justification and sanctification are not the same, but they go together. Justification is the act of God's free grace. That comes from the catechism. It is the act. If you believed on Christ, you're as justified as you ever will be. Well, on that final day at the judgment seat, we will hear not guilty. But as of now, you are not guilty before God most high. And that does not change. Sanctification, our Christian walk, our good works is the work of God's free grace. And there is progression. There is growth, hopefully, in that. But sanctification flows out of justification. That is important. Works are a good assurance, as the confession says, of our salvation. But it can also be our test and a warning to those who have not believed on Christ at all. Notice he says, whoever sins, whose life is characterized by love of sin, has neither seen him nor known him. And the false teachers claim that they do not have sin, but in reality, they are engaging in it. And when they engage in it, 
they are showing that they never knew the Savior anyway. They have wrong doctrine and wrong practice. Right doctrine leads to right practice, dear brethren. Knowledge hopefully leads to right knowledge and trusting in that knowledge and understanding that knowledge hopefully leads to a right and holy living. But what that means for the people of God, Christians, God's people, is that we must shun sin. And again, that flows out of who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the truth. We are sinners and we have a great Savior. We have been forgiven and anointed by the, with the Spirit because of the atoning work of Christ. And so the command then flowing out of that, don't sin. I mean, John says the same thing, doesn't he? In chapter 2, verse 2, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. Brethren, that's the Christian life, isn't it? Putting to death sin because Christ has put it to death in us. Putting to death, as we saw Paul say in Colossians 3, you've put off the old man, now put off the old man. You've put off those things, now fight daily. As John Owen says, kill sin before sin kills you. It's not a moralization of the text to say such things when we have the indicative, the truth, preceding the imperative. If I only said, you have to do this to earn your way. If I only said, here's how you live, without any sort of foundation, that would be moralizing the text. But we have to have the truth that precedes the commands. And there are certainly throughout the rest of 1 John, he does give commands for the children of God to engage in. But we must know the place of it. And when we know the place of the law, when we know the place of good works, does it help us understand what our lives are supposed to be? <laughs> What's our Christian life, dear brother? And what's the will of God for my life? Fear God and keep his commandments. I mean, have no other gods before you. You know, don't make for yourself false idols. You know, honor your, uh, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother. Don't murder. Don't, um, don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Uh, yeah, don't steal. Uh, don't uh, bear false witness and don't covet. I need a break, dear brother. And you can see that, right? I can't, can't remember the Ten Commandments that normally I can rattle off uh, pretty easily. But that's our Christian life, dear brethren. The negative aspect is shunning it. Don't sin. Don't do those things that, it's, uh, that the commandments say. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. But the positive is pursue what is right and good. You see, there is the positive aspect of the Ten Commandments as well. And the children of God should shun evil. We are forgiven in Christ. And the foundation is because of what Christ has done. We should shun evil. We should also pursue righteousness. And that is our second point, isn't it? We see how we saw shunning sin, verses 4 through 6, but now we see how the children of God pursue righteousness. And I don't think I'm out to lunch with this emphasis because David Dixon, who was a Puritan, excellent little commentary on the general epistles, but after every verse he commented on, here's what you are, therefore, pursue righteousness. So uh, I stand on the shoulders of giants. And if you've got a problem with what I'm saying, take it up with John when you get to heaven, take it up with David Dixon when you get to heaven. Don't take it out with me now, though, okay? I, I, I'm, I'm ready for a break. Just let it go uh, until I come back. But uh, children of God should pursue righteousness. Again, there's the positive aspect of the Ten Commandments. Think of the Sixth Commandment. Don't murder. What's the opposite of the Sixth Commandment? Preserve life, however that looks. There is the Sixth Commandment implies a little bit of exercise, doesn't it? The uh, Sixth Commandment implies a little bit of eating well, doesn't it? That we might preserve our life. I'm not saying there isn't, you know, ailments that come, but there is something there with that. Think about the Eighth Commandment. Don't steal. What's the opposite of the Eighth Commandment? As the Children's Catechism says, it's a big word for children. I can't believe they put it there, but be industrious. Be diligent. Work hard. That's how we pursue what is right and good, because we are righteous in Christ. So children of God pursue righteousness, verses 7 through 10. But notice, remember, or remember, it is still within the context of false teachers, little children. Verse 7, let no one deceive you. These men were teaching licentiousness. These men were teaching you can just do any sort of sin you want to do. We're so accepted in Christ that we can just do whatever we want. That was probably the view uh, of these false teachers because of their view of matter and spirit. Let no one deceive you. 
He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Again, we're not saying, uh, he's not saying we are righteous because of our righteousness, but know the, notice the flow. We practice righteousness, which is a sign of our righteousness, because we are in the one who is righteous. Brother, there's only one who is righteous in this world, and that was Christ. There's only one who lived the law in absolute perfection, and if we are in him, we are righteous in him, and we pursue righteousness. Righteousness, or Christian living, is a sign, once again, a sign and assurance of who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. But one thing that's interesting, he who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. I already talked about this. There's a lot of repetition with what is said in these verses. We already talked about how Christ lived a perfect life. That's what we call his active obedience. His passive obedience is his suffering and dying upon that cross, but his life is that act of obedience, and we see that there, just as he is righteous. We, already, we saw that in 2.29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Or chapter 2, verse 1. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In the context of our Christian life and our remaining corruption, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, and it is Jesus Christ who is the righteous one. And if we are in him, if we are righteous in him, we shall, as the people of God, or ought to, pursue righteousness. Gill, I think, summarizes it well when he says, so that he that doeth righteousness is he that being convinced of the insufficiency of his own righteousness and the excellency and suitableness of Christ's righteousness renounces his own and submits to his, who lays hold upon it, receives it, and exercises faith on it as his justifying righteousness. And in consequence of this, some of those connecting words are so important for theology, right? Good works are a consequence of our salvation. They do not precede our salvation. They're not antecedent to our justification. Good works are a consequence that flows out of, lives in a course of holiness and righteousness in opposition to and distinction from one that commits sin or lives a sinful course of life. If you are a child of God, if you are righteous in Christ Jesus, you shall and do by the power of God practice righteousness just as our Savior is righteous. But notice what a child of the devil does. Verses 8 and 9. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The emphasis here is one who is under the, perp the sway of, or, again, slave to sin. We need to ask the question, what characterizes one's life? If you love sin, and what I mean by that is you look for perpetual excuses. You're always trying to find that line. What can I do but still be in? That is not a good attitude or not a promising attitude when it comes to the things of God. Brethren, God's people struggle with sin, but it's more of I hate it, but I love it kind of response to it, right? At least that's how it should be. We're still going to do sin. We're still going to engage in acts of sin because of that remaining corruption. But it should be this, I hate it. I want to get rid of this pet sin. I want to get rid of this sin that I struggle with for so long. It should be more of that than this, well, whatever. Let's see what happens. What's the, what's the baseline that I can do? That's, that's an, uh, so if we, if one loves sin, if one is characterized by sin, if that's the emphasis in their life, then one could be manifested to be a child of the devil. He who sins is of the devil. And notice the devil has sinned from the beginning. Remember, brethren, that the devil was created, one of the angels, pure and upright, but he sought out his own devices as well. We don't really know how that happened. And when we talk about sin coming into this world, sin coming upon all mankind, we usually think in terms of Adam, which is correct. God entered into a covenant with Adam, and when Adam violated that, he brought sin onto all mankind. But remember, it was the devil who sinned first, right? 
It was the devil who rebelled against God most high. We don't exactly know what he did. Gill says he not of his creation. That's not what we're referring to here. For he was made by God a pure and holy creature, but from the beginning of the world or near it, at least from the beginning of man's creation, for he not only sinned by rebelling against God himself and by drawing in the rest of the apostate angels into the rebellion with him, but by tempting man as soon as created to sin against God. What was his first and particular sin is not certain, whether pride or envy or what? We don't know. But the main thing is he engaged in what? Lawlessness. That is the essence of sin. It's what the devil did. And he has been the one who's been sinning from the beginning. He is the one who tempted Eve in the garden. And notice, he who sins is of the devil. We're going to talk about that a little bit more when we get to verse 10. But that's a tough concept for all of us, really, but especially a tough concept for Arminians. I'll get to that more uh, in just a moment. But notice the purpose for why the Son of God was manifest. For this purpose, the Son of God. Why is it that he who is God became man? Well, there are many reasons for that. One is to take away our sin, but notice the conquest as well. That he might destroy the works of the devil. He is, has he not done this on the cross? And will it not be not bring in the finality of it when he returns again? This is the assurance that God's people have. Remember, conquest is part of Christ's work, just as atonement is part of Christ's work. But so is him con engaging in conquest to destroy the works of the devil. And I do think there's an important conceptual allusion here. Back to Genesis 3.15. You can turn there. Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel proclamation. And notice the first gospel proclamation is all about conquest, isn't it? And it's right in the midst of the curse of the serpent. God is speaking to that serpent, curses the serpent, and he says to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So two seeds, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. When and how does that happen? On the cross. The bruising of the heel and the crushing of the head happens at Calvary. And brethren, as the rest of the Bible unfolds, we are looking for whom? The seed of the woman. That's why our confession says that the covenant of grace is the gospel. And it is first revealed to Adam or through by way of the curse to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 and revealed by farther steps. It's what puts the whole Bible together. It's what we call covenant theology. We are waiting for the seed of the woman to come. If you're starting at Genesis, you're starting here. We're waiting for him to come. As the Bible unfolds, we see that the seed of the woman will, will be one like an ark who passes through judgment. We'll see that he is going to be the seed of Abraham. We're going to see that he's going to perhaps be us. He's going to engage in sacrifice. He's going to keep the law. He is going to be a king who reigns. You see that by farther steps as the Bible unfolds. And that's why Jesus says all the law and the prophets point to whom? Me. It points to Christ. And what does Christ come to do to redeem his people? What's the first proclamation to crush the head of the seed of the serpent? That is why he came into this world, dear brethren. And it is through that conquering that we can be assured we have overcome he who is in the world. And later on, John says the very thing in first John chapter four. And so for this purpose in verse eight, Christ came into this world. He who is the son of God, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's why we can have assurance dear brother. It is what the last hour. And he is the one who reigns and is crushed. And the devil has no more power in this world over the people of God. However, 
he may have power. He does have power over his seed, the devil's seed, which we'll get to uh, in just a second in verse 10. But notice verse 9. Therefore, as we see the flow, whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Again, this passage is typically used by some to teach sinless perfection. That's not what is going on here. It's much like we saw in verse 6. Here is who you are. Here's what you're characterized by. You are the seed of God. Ergo, your life is no longer characterized by sin. Whereas Gil says sin is no longer longer a trade or a business, uh, not his trade or business in this world. It is not a life that is characterized by unrepentant sin. You struggle with sin, you confess it. You engage in that sin, you confess it and find mercy, dear brethren. But it's one whose life is characterized by perpetual, persistent, unrepentant sin. And the grammar does help here as well. I won't get into that. Uh, But suffice it to say, he's teaching here uh, that if you're a child of God, your life is no longer characterized by sin, but your life is characterized by God. Uh, Ba says the phrase in 1 John 3, 9 expresses the fact that the Christian is prevented by the new birth and the abiding presence of God from falling into persistent sin. Brethren, isn't that a bit of an encouragement for us when we struggle with sin? Do you ever have periods where you go through it for a while? You just can't shake that one sin. Perhaps it's when people cut you off and you get really angry. I use that one a lot. I am struggling with that one still. People cut you off and you get really angry at people. Well, brethren, the wonderful thing is that if we're in Christ, we will grow. I'm not saying we'll never struggle with that sin ever again, but isn't the comfort and assurance that we shall grow If we've been born of him, our life is no longer characterized by sin. And if our life is no longer characterized by sin, shouldn't that give us a bit of skip in our step when we battle against sin? Shouldn't it give us confidence when we come before God? Shouldn't it give us an assurance and encouragement? We have the spirit to help us. We can grieve the spirit, but we have the help of the spirit in this present age. Dixon says, he that is regenerate cannot sin because he is born of God who will not forsake him that is born of him, and so governs and moves the heart of him that is born of him, that he steadfastly wars against sin, following the guidance of the Spirit. Isn't that the point? Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. He cannot sin because he has been born of God. As much as we've talked about the exhortation, how we live, a lot of what we see in verses 4 through 10 is the foundation what Christ has done, who we are in God as the children of God, as we press on in this world. Our life is no longer characterized by sin. And then he drives to the point in verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Notice, children of God and the children of the devil are made clear. That's a tough one, isn't it? That's a tough thing to grasp. It's helpful for us Calvinists. And it's also helpful when you consider the flow of the entire Bible, right? Especially in Genesis. Cain and Abel. Oh, look, he goes on to talk about Cain, who is the first murderer. Cain and Abel. Cain and Seth, really. We have the seed of the uh, serpent and the seed of the woman. Do we not? We have um, Jacob and Esau. We have Isaac and Ishmael. We see that flowing throughout all of scripture. It's what I think is meant when we see in Genesis, where we see the sons of men looked and saw, or so the sons of God looked and saw the daughters of men. That's what I think is perhaps in view here. I don't think sons of God in Genesis 6 are angels. Do you want to know why? Do angels have a body? Angels are spirits, dear brethren. So sons of God refer to men. Perhaps it's kings, possibly as well. But I do think this idea of children of God and children of the devil is throughout scripture. And it's also throughout all of history as well, is it not? I mean, if you don't like this language, Jesus himself says it 
in John 8, 44. He's speaking to the Pharisees, and what does he say? You are of your father, the devil. Brethren, that's tough stuff, isn't it? But there is this flow in Scripture of the children of God and the children of the devil. And one will be made manifest by their persistence in sin. One will be made manifest by their foundation in Christ and the righteous life that they live flowing out of being found in Christ Jesus. They will be made manifest. They will be made manifest on that final day when Christ comes again. But brethren, this is tough stuff. Judas is another example. He was manifested to be what? A child of the devil. Notice one does not have to engage in what we call the big sins all the time, but Pharisees. I mean, they did engage in big sins, but, uh, but just self-righteousness, not being found in Christ. One will be manifest that they are a child of the devil. Brethren, that's tough stuff, but it is clear. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. And so, brethren, if you are in Christ, you've been found in him, pursue righteousness. And remember, as you pursue that righteousness, you do so with that firm foundation. If you believed on Christ, you are a child of God. Follow what he says. Later on, John will say in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And the reason that they're not burdensome is because we are found in Christ Jesus. He has paid it all. He has taken away our sins. He has conquered the devil and destroyed the works of the devil. We must remember that firm foundation that we have. When I say shun evil and pursue righteousness, do so in Christ the Lord and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And brethren, if you sin, is there not forgiveness? If you sin... Is there not a heavenly father who will hear us and forgive us because we have an advocate with the father? Brethren, that is so important to remember that there is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pursue righteousness, shun evil, but if you sin, there is mercy and forgiveness in him. And be assured you are a child of God. But if you're an unbeliever here today, my call to you is to believe on Jesus Christ. You are not righteous. You've violated God's law. You cannot say you've done any iota of those commandments with perfection. Believe on Christ who did, and you shall have life everlasting. I pray that it is not manifest that you are a child of the devil. I pray that it would be manifest that you are a child of God, but to be a child of God, you must believe by, in Christ by faith. Believe upon him. You are to be manifest that you're a child of God. Believe upon him by faith, and you shall have life everlasting and be a child of God with him forever. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord our God, we are thankful for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your kindness and salvation that you bring to undeserving people like us. Thank you that as a father pities his children, you pity those who fear your name by faith. And so we know that when we were born into this world, we were born with sin, the guilt of it, and dealing with the corruption of it. Uh, and we are thankful that Christ died many years ago to save us from our sins and to save his people from their sins. And thank you that in our time, in our lives, in our time, in the time and space of our lives, that you're the one uh, who made us born again. You're the one who gave us the gifts of faith and repentance. You did all these things. You've justified us. You are sanctifying us. Help us to understand the place of it in our lives. Help us to understand who we are in Christ. Help us to understand what Christ has done. And help us to understand the place of good works in the present world in which we live. Thank you that if righteousness was based upon our works, O oh God, we could not stand. But we're thankful it's based on Christ and his finished and completed work. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for even hard passages that teach us good things about Christ our Lord and Christ our King. 
thing that Christ came to take away sin. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. We ask and pray that you would save sinners this day. We pray that it would not be manifest that they are the children of the devil, but we pray that you would save their souls and it would be manifest that they are children of God. So work, we pray. Thank you that you have chosen a great multitude before the foundation of the world. Please make that known, we pray, uh, as you come again. So we long for your return. We long for Christ and his coming. And as we await that time, help us to grow. Help us to pursue righteousness. Help us to shun evil uh, in that firm foundation of our Christ. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ.